and welcome to this podcast from Herbert Smith Freehills. I'm Jasveer Randawa of Council in our public law team in the London office. I'm joined today by Andrew Lidbetter and Nusrat Zar, both partners in our public law team. In December, the Ministry of Justice published a long-awaited consultation paper on the reform of the Human Rights Act 1998. The consultation paper proposes an overhaul of the Act in order to, it states, restore common sense to the application of human rights in the UK. The government still intends to remain party to the European Convention, but it proposes to introduce a new Bill of Rights in place of the 1998 Act. In this podcast, we'll be discussing our thoughts on some of the proposed changes. Let's start with the proposed changes to Section 2 of the current Human Rights Act. Andrew, please could you summarise these changes for us? Certainly. As we know, the current position in relation to Section 2 is that courts must take into account judgments and decisions from the European Court of Human Rights, the Strasbourg Court. The purpose of this was essentially to ensure that UK human rights law generally aligned with Strasbourg jurisprudence so that rights could, as it was said, be brought home. The government now proposed that domestic courts should have recourse to a wider range of jurisprudential sources when reaching decisions, such as the UK common law and perspectives from other common law jurisdictions. Although the exact wording of the new provision has not been finalised, the government wants to soften the language of Section 2 so that UK courts may have regard to judgments under the international law, including Strasbourg cases and cases from other common law jurisdictions. And what's HSF's view on these proposals? Well, we find it slightly difficult to understand what the objective is here. We think that the current approach works well, as it makes clear that courts should not be taking a different approach from Strasbourg without good reasons, while still allowing for departure in appropriate cases. The consequence of this proposal is that it might bring our human rights law out of step with Strasbourg. If UK courts are consulting different sources of law, they might come to different conclusions to the Strasbourg court. We may see rights being interpreted more restrictively in the UK. Whereas this divergence does appear to be what the government is aiming for with the proposal, it could cause some uncertainty as to what our rights actually are. That's interesting. Thank you, Andrew. I suppose it could also lead to more people seeking redress directly from Strasbourg, increasing costs for claimants. Turning now to the proposed changes to Section 3, do you mind giving us a quick summary, Nusrit? Thanks, Jazz. Yeah, and Section 3 currently requires the courts to interpret domestic legislation as compatible with convention rights so far as it is possible to do so. Now the government think that the problem with this is that it allows judges to overextend the language of statute in a way that may frustrate the will of Parliament. Therefore, the government are proposing either to repeal Section 3 or to repeal and replace it with a provision that emphasises that any interpretation given to a statute has to be available on an ordinary reading of the language and must be consistent with the overall purpose of the legislation. So the idea is once again to soften the language of Section 3. 
And what's HSF's opinion on these changes? Again, we think the current system works well as it is. It's important that courts don't overlook or disregard Parliament's intention, but there are already numerous instances of judges explaining that the Section 3 obligation does not permit an interpretation that goes against the grain of the relevant legislation. From our perspective, the domestic courts already understand and respect the boundary between interpreting in a convention-compatible way where that is possible and straying into the role of the legislature or distorting the meaning and intention of the primary legislation. This second proposal to replace Section 3 with a provision that requires any interpretation to be available on an ordinary reading of the language and consistent with the legislation's purpose does not sound too far away from the current position. So at best, it may not make any difference to the present arrangement, and at worst, it may create confusion and uncertainty. I see that the government have also proposed to extend the operation of declarations of incompatibility so that they could be issued in response to incompatible secondary legislation. What problem is this trying to solve? This is an interesting one because the courts have already confirmed the circumstances in which they should be striking down secondary legislation when it's incompatible with human rights and therefore unlawful. And that's the case of RR, the Secretary of State for Work and Pensions from 2019. The government seems to want to remove this power from the courts and replace it with the power to issue a declaration of incompatibility as they can with primary legislation. I think there are some quite significant accountability issues uh, with this proposal. Secondary legislation doesn't raise the same concerns about democratic legitimacy that primary legislation does. It tends to be made by ministers uh, rather than parliament, albeit with some parliamentary oversight. That setup doesn't really call for the declaration of incompatibility mechanism. For a declaration of incompatibility to have an effect, it requires someone to act to change the legislation. This means that as with declarations made in respect of primary legislation, uh, we could be stuck with secondary legislation that's incompatible with the convention that the government is reluctant to do anything to change. Yes, agreed. It's difficult to see why unlawful secondary legislation shouldn't be treated the same way as an unlawful action or decision by a minister. The government's also considering introducing a permission stage. Andrew, how would that work? Uh, claimants would have to pass an initial stage before receiving a full hearing. The proposals are the, that a claimant must show that they have suffered a significant disadvantage in order to bring a claim, or failing that, they must show that their case is of overriding public importance in which case the court would still have a discretion to hear the claim. It's unclear, as things stand, how the current victim test differs from the significant disadvantage test. But there is a danger here. If there's a higher threshold in place that claimants must pass, it presents risks. There may be cases where the extent of the harm caused to the claimant doesn't come fully to light at the limited permission stage, and so potentially deserving cases might not be able to go forward. Another one that has the potential to cause uncertainty and confusion. 
Nusrat, what changes are the government planning on making in relation to the liability of public authorities? As things stand, public bodies must act compatibly with convention rights. That's section six of the Act. The problem, as the government see it, is that public bodies often try to give effect to the will of Parliament and may be frustrated in doing so if they're held to have acted incompatibly with convention rights. There is already, of course, section 6.2 of the Act, which says that if public bodies could not have acted differently as a result of primary legislation, they will not be held liable. However, the government doesn't think that this goes far enough because it only applies where the primary legislation can't be read compatibly with convention rights. A number of options have been proposed. Perhaps the most extreme is to introduce a provision that says that wherever public authorities are clearly giving effect to primary legislation, they cannot be deemed to be acting unlawfully. That seems rather wide. I think it is. There are often many different ways to give effect to primary legislation. The current regime effectively requires public authorities to think about whether it's possible for them to act in a way that protects human rights before deciding how to carry out their duties by thinking about whether it's possible to interpret the relevant legislation in a convention-compatible way. This proposal seems to remove that requirement. So long as public bodies are giving effect to legislation, they will not be held liable. Linked to this is the government's wish for the courts to consider the wider public interest when awarding remedies, such as damages, for breaches of human rights. So the government suggests that damages may not be awarded against public authorities who are trying to give effect to legislation. Thanks, Nusrat. The government's made some other proposals alongside these ones. Can you give us a flavour of some of those? Yes, there's a number of other points. For example, the government's decided not to remove any of the rights in Schedule 1 of the current Act, but they have decided to add a right, and that's the right to a jury trial. The government also proposes to emphasise the importance of freedom of expression, especially in relation to competing rights, such as the right to privacy. The government also wants to make clear that the Supreme Court is the final arbiter of human rights decisions in the UK. And interestingly, the government is considering introducing a system whereby damages are reduced for undeserving claimants by permitting the courts to consider the claimant's conduct, not only in the claim, but also other relevant past conduct. The purpose of this, they state, is to emphasise the importance of responsibility in addition to rights. The government also proposed to clarify the operation of the principle of proportionality with regards to qualified rights, which are those rights that might need to be restricted in situations where rights must be balanced or the wider needs of society need to be considered. Yes, it's difficult to see how legislation would assist with something as subtle as the principle of proportionality. Uh, there's already a balancing process that the courts must undertake in a huge amount of case law. The focus of the proposal seems to be on giving greater weight to the will of Parliament. But from our perspective, the courts are already conscious of that and are cautious about straying into policy areas. It might be that legislation simply isn't much help here because the balancing exercise is not one that is easily codified. 
The last thing worth mentioning is that the government wants to try to review the system of dialogue between the UK and the Strasbourg court in relation to adverse judgments from Strasbourg. The government have included a draft provision which emphasises that judgments of the European court are not part of the law of the UK and have no effect on parliamentary sovereignty. If the court decides that the UK has acted incompatibly with convention rights, the Secretary of State must lay notice of the judgment before Parliament, and a minister may exercise a power to table a motion in either the Commons or the Lords for a debate. These proposals are intended to make it clear that Parliament has the last word on how to respond to adverse rulings. And what's the next stage now that this consultation document has been published? The government's currently receiving responses to the consultation. The consultation period closes on the 8th of March, and it's very difficult to say how quickly the government will move from there. But it is perhaps possible that we will see new legislation fairly shortly, perhaps in 2023. That brings us to the end of the podcast. Thank you to Andrew, Nusrat and to our listeners. We hope you found this information useful. If you'd like any more information, do feel free to be in touch and keep an eye on our Public Law Notes blog. This was Jasveer Randawa, Andrew Lidbetter and Nusrat Zart of Herbert Smith Freehills Public Law Practice in London. <laughs> <laughs>